Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Deborah Goodrich Royce here with Zach and Dustin, $2 late fees, talking murder, mayhem, mystery, and movies and books. Before there was IMDb.com, there was Zach and Dustin. Congrats! You found $2 Late Fee, the best 80s movies podcast in the world. We revisit our favorite 80s movies. And sometimes 90s. And soundtracks from our youth. And then we interview our favorite people who help make them. All in the spirit of nostalgic positivity. Thanks for listening. Deborah Goodrich Royce is our guest today. Not only is she a fantastic actor that we've loved in movies like April Fool's Day and Just One of the Guys, Remote Control with Kevin Dillon, hello, she's a phenomenal writer as well, and she's on our show today to talk about her career on screen and her literary career too. Yeah, she has a recent book uh, called Reef Road, out in stores now, available wherever you get books. For your, for your readers. And um, Deborah was fantastic. I really, uh, you know, I love, in all of our interviews, when we go back with a guest and we kind of go into this nostalgic place uh, with them, um, it's kind of fun in real time to kind of see them go back to a place that they haven't thought about for, you know, 35 plus years. Because um, it's always interesting, you know, the good, the bad, the awesome I mean really the movies that she's been in that we've covered have a lot of meaning for us I mean specifically just one of the guys yeah oh yeah absolutely you know the, so there is like a surreal effect whenever we have somebody from that movie on our show because it's like you know it's almost like wow like all these connections that we've made with them and then you hear their stories and it it kind of opens up the movie even more yeah, it's nice to have recollections from guests on our show that are positive. Obviously, it's entertaining and fun when we hear someone tell a story that is a little off kilter or what have you. But Tebra brings a lot of positivity to our show with all those memories of our favorite decade. And actually, she tells some stories outside of her acting career that are equally entertaining. I will quickly say she did a $2 six question segment with us. And those of you that are patrons, We'll get exclusive access to that. Again, highly entertaining. If you're not a patron, consider becoming one. The links are in our show notes, along with the links to all of Deborah's books. She's written three, and Ruby Falls, yeah, is her newest one. 
highly recommend you pick them up. She's a mystery writer and what she provides, she gives you a little bit of insight into her stories in this interview. And uh, we hope you check it out. And just another thought on this $2, six questions thing. Cause I, I really, I, I've said this before, but it, it, it really needs to be repeated. It's like our guests have interviews with us and then it, they're great. They're great, right? They're into it. But the, the, the spark and joy in their eyes when we go like, Hey, we got some questions from our listeners, from our, from our patrons. And then they get that first question and it's like, on the surface, it seems random. But then they're always like, whoa, it's almost like this sense of gratitude that comes over them because they're like, your audience knows about that? And we're like, yeah, like that's that's what we live for. That that random, that seemingly random show that you were on, that pilot that aired and <laughs> didn't go to series, that's what that's what our show is about. And it's not like we're putting on some kind of some kind of weird facade or 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 some gimmick here it's like we genuinely love these things that may seem random and you guys the audience are the same way that's why you listen to to this show so anyway all that to say i encourage you to sign up to our patreon ask the questions be a part of that joy because it's really cool yeah the reason our guests have such a great time is because of not just us, but you as well. So thank you so much for being a part of that. And thank you for making the show the best version of what it is. And uh, if you're not a patron, well, I hope you consider this quick little sell from both of us. But enjoy the interview from Deborah. She is as lovely as you would expect her to be. Thanks, guys. You're the best. Enjoy Deborah Goodridge Royce. Look at you. You're like, oh my gosh, it looks like a presidential suite in, the, in behind you. In Florida. It does. Oh. It looks, see, it's the wicker. You can see the kind of tropical stuff. The Florida lighting, now that I know you're in Florida. Yeah. How'd you fare in, in hurricane season? So weirdly, so we're on the other side of the peninsula from Fort Myers, which got so devastated by Ian. We lost a tree with Ian. There must have been like a little micro wind tunnel that came across because there was a second hurricane that was really here where we were fine, but we lost a tree for theirs. I don't know why. I always found LA a little scarier. The The earthquake is very alarming to me because you do not get any warning. Well, look at Turkey and Syria now. Yeah. 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 That is a little freaky. Were you in the 94, I believe it was the 94 Northridge. Were you in that earthquake? Not physically. <laughs> My house was in it. I had moved back to New York and I had uh, very, very bad, epically bad tenants in my house. So bad they were running a brothel in my house. <laughs> Whoa, there's a mini documentary over in Atwater Village. And um, because of that earthquake, it it belabored the the effort to get them out of the house because the police were extremely busy at that time. We can talk about that. It was the craziest story. Did you find out about the brothel because of the earthquake? So how that all happened, we... (laughs) We're moving to New York. My first husband worked for Julia Roberts. She had a deal at Disney with Joe Roth. She wanted to live in New York. So he first was on the Disney lot. 
but she wanted the company in New York. So he flew to New York, found a place. We got these tenants. And so this girl showed up and she was this pretty blonde from Connecticut holding a baby, really like a prop baby. It was a real oh baby. <laughs> oh my God. So this girl came to the door one day and we were, maybe this was part of the setup. We were just about to sign a lease with another guy who was kind of aggressive and a little combative. Enter Sarah. And she was very sweet, but things were off from the get-go. Uh, I was chatting with her and I said, well, let me show you around the property. I'll take you out the back. She said, oh, I've already seen it. I've walked around your backyard. That's odd. Mm. That's odd. That is odd. But yeah. did I pay attention to that? No, I ignored that. No. Right. <laughs> so I said, okay. oh, huh. And then when it came time to get the money, we had to go to the bank and she had this weird boyfriend and she was very subdued around the boyfriend. It was just a completely different energy. And then I called the phone company and I say, yeah. I called and said, this girl, Dana so-and-so is going to be moving into the house. And they said, oh, we've heard from a Stacy so-and-so. So I called Dana and I said, it's a little funny. The phone company thinks your name is Stacy. She said, well, I use my sister's name. I owe them money. So we get, oh, God. we get to New York and the oh, boyfriend God. is asking us this weird series of questions. We had, uh, it's a tiny, you know, thousand square foot house. Could we add a second sink to the bathroom? Okay. Well, that's an odd thing. And how easy is it to get back to the jacuzzi? It was one of those typical LA properties that had outbuildings, like a little guest house, a little office. Sure. I talked to my friend, the real estate agent. He said, Deborah, I need to talk to you about something about the house, about your tenant, but I can't speak to you for one week. So I speed dial him a week later and I said, ha ha ha, let me tell you what I thought. That boyfriend of that girl is a drug dealer and government's going to, you know, stage a sting. He said, well, it's not drugs. Oh, man. So I hear from a neighbor who said there are all these cute little girls in mini skirts who are out walking oh. this baby, this prop baby. <laughs> this prop baby. They're babysitters. And the oh, neighbor said they had. You know, we had house numbers on the house and they put lights around it, but they moved in in December and she thought it was Christmas. And she said, mm. you know, there are guys who arrive at your house all day long and Jaguars and BMWs. And yeah, they were running a brothel. Oh and it's my God. so hard to get people out of your house. And that hurricane, that earthquake came along. And then one of the neighbors said, why don't you just get a security guard? And I thought, you know, I don't really know too much about this, but I'm going to bet if I'm paying some security guy a few hundred dollars a day to sit in a brothel with a bunch of very pretty girls, he's going to take my money for the next 10 years. And so oh my God. nothing going on here, lady. Yeah. Oh, everything's fine. So uh, finally, it took about six months. Wow. That's incredible. So uh, so you did not hire a security guard? No, we had this very busybody older neighbor. Uh, I can't even think of his name. <laughs> Ralph Furley? <laughs> kind huh. of. And he did all this research and he would go sit there and the boyfriend 
had some court dates for kind of mischief he'd gotten into. They had a track record of yeah, sure. behaving badly. And of course, this neighbor would go sit at the court dates. And then Dana called me one day. She said, and we never mentioned anything. It was like high wasp decorum. She was from Connecticut. I'm from Connecticut. Nobody's saying a word. Everybody knows what's going on. And we're all behaving really well and discussing things like sinks and jacuzzis. And Dana called me one day and she said, you are harassing me. I am pregnant and I might lose this baby. I said, you know, Dana, I don't even know what to say to you. I just really don't even know what to wow. say to you. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So that was my Northridge earthquake. Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, are you, are you gonna, you need to turn that into a book. I mean, you've turned, you've got three books out now. That's an That's your, idea. I, and I've got one of them right here, by the way. I've got Reef Road in my hand. I have the other two. I, wait, I have books. <laughs> Good. Yay. Ruby Falls, Finding Mrs. Ford. Awesome. Yeah, I, I do turn things into books. I have not turned that into a book. It would be a good one. Because what was fascinating about her was, as I said, this kind of, we're not going to say what's going on here personality she had and some years later she called my friend paul the real estate agent for a recommendation and he said oh my god Dana, you were probably the single worst tenant i've ever met in my life i oh, yeah wow. and then i i never lived in that house again i had two little girls and i thought mm, no, no. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, especially if you don't take a black light to it and, you know, who knows what sort of... Set it on fire. This is not boogie nights. Rebuild. This is not... Uh, oh, my gosh. Yeah. You well, never know who's going to show up in the middle of the night. Right. That's true. That's true. Looking for looking for Dana or Stacy or whoever, whatever name. Zool. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, so you and I met about a month ago. I came to your books signing and uh, chat for Reef Road. It was such a phenomenal experience to hear you talk about a brief moment of your history in Los Angeles and then how you got on the path to becoming a writer. You could easily write your own biography and that would be a big hit seller. Well, thank you. I mean, I think if you live a while and I've lived a while, life is interesting and it has lots of stories. Like people ask me sometimes, do you ever get writer's block? And I, my answer is, well, if you consider the first 50 years of my life, maybe I had writer's block, but <laughs> mm. then it's been kind of a good run of ideas. And what's interesting at this juncture, having had some success as a young actress, and, and that was lovely, but I think at that moment, perhaps I didn't pay close enough attention to everything that was going on. And perhaps I thought it might always be that way or grow and build from there. And then life took some turns. And now it's a completely different experience in the ability to enjoy. Like I'm on this crazy book tour with 81 cities and people Whoa. go, oh, how can you do that? That's horrible. But it isn't. I'm just trying to enjoy it. Although I'm home in yeah. Palm Beach today because Madison, Wisconsin became virtual because of a snowstorm. So this is kind of relaxing. Yes. But I think the difference you get as you get older is this, um, <clears throat> you just don't take as much for granted. And you realize, I probably should enjoy this now because it might not last. 
That's a great attitude. Whereas you're saying when you when you started acting initially, you were kind of perceiving it as sort of a linear thing of like, this is my career and I am now advancing and I will be running Hollywood in a few years. In about three minutes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for me, one of the biggest, uh, you know, to use the COVID word, pivots was um, getting pregnant with my first daughter. I had just screen tested for about last night and that was a very small group of actresses at the final screen test and when i got pregnant i thought i would just bounce back to work i didn't realize one that i would change and two that on the heels of my pregnancy there was a writer's strike so it expanded the length of time away and when i came back i guess my priorities were different. My allotment of time was different. Sure. And I found myself, you know, going to great lengths to try to get a project that I probably wouldn't pay money to go see. And it, it just became a, a question of perspective. That makes a lot of sense. And at, and at that point, it probably, was it, did you find your sort of your, your relationship to things like where it was like, even the simple idea of just going to an audition would suddenly become like, Ugh. yeah, it's cumbersome. And of course this yeah. was the olden days <laughs> and this was before all the technology we have now. So I, would, I was living in Atwater village and I would get a call at six o'clock in the evening to pick up a script in Culver city. And I had a, a one-year-old and a four-year-old and six in the evenings, like the witching hour, you've got to get every horrible, you know, yeah. bed and in bed and and the idea of driving it yeah it the bloom was off the rose maybe i think it's different if your career is in a different position i felt like my career took a step back in in the time i took off and it wasn't ever in the place where i was just being offered roles that might be a whole mm -hmm. different game Sure. You're, you're not getting the script's messenger to your home, clearly. That's right. That. Hand delivered. Here you go, man. Yes, yes. Will you, do you look back on your career as an actor fondly, though? I do. I really do. I think it was such a wonderful thing to do in my 20s and early 30s. I'm glad I went to college. I'm glad I was able to do something else. I don't wish I were doing it now. but. I loved the the people and the projects and the travel and the change, you know, because everything is, you're always looking for a new job, which is of course dismaying when you first start out as an actor, because in most other walks of life, you, you gear yourself up to get a job and then you have a job for a certain yes. period of time. In that world, it's, you're always looking for work, which I think can keep you nimble uh, the careers I admire a lot are the people who've really maintained a real working actor life. Like I'm close friends still with an actor named Ken Tiger, and mm. we did just one of the guys together. He played the teacher where the rest of us were students. And yep. fairly recently, he was in uh, The Avengers, I believe, not yes. that long ago. And, but here's my favorite Ken Tiger story. So Ken is absolutely brilliant. He has three Harvard degrees, undergraduate, <sighs> master's, PhD in German studies. 
Wow. So then he goes through his acting years, his 20s, his 30s, his 40s, his 50s, his 60s, his 70s. In his 70s, he's cast as Himmler in Man in a High Castle, and he gets to do some of it in German. I'm like, that college degree finally paid off. Finally, in your 70s. That's so remarkable. Yeah. <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about that really quick. Kenneth Tiger was great in Just One of the Guys. And I want to talk about Just One of the Guys because we absolutely adore that movie. Um, we've had Joyce on our show and she was lovely. Uh, and, and eventually down the road, we want to do a, a, a cast reunion, which would be fantastic. But that was one of your earlier roles, right? So I finished All My Children Uh, I started on a soap and I did it for a year. And then my character was thrown into prison. And then Paramount Pictures flew me out to LA to screen test for a pilot with Christopher Lloyd, which I got and we made, but it wasn't picked up. Mm. That was my first movie, Just One of the Guys. And I was driving my boyfriend to the audition. He was auditioning for the role that Lee McCluskey played the kind of college age boyfriend of Joyce's. Yep. And I drove him and it was, I think the Warner brothers lot. And you know, those LA buildings that you have two stories, but you have the outside corridor. You're, you're not inside. So I was kind of standing outside on that cement uh, hallway, if you will. And Grant was inside auditioning. And then someone came out and asked me to step in and audition. And I got the movie and Grant didn't. Wow. Mm. I know that not a not a good moment in our relationship. We're not talking about Grant's show, are we? No, Grant Forsberg. He, okay. he has died. He was a great guy. He uh what are some of the things he did? Well, we did that pilot together. That's how we met. And okay. he did um he did some films. But he died young. Nice, wonderful guy. But that's how I got that movie. Thank you. Thank you. Well, as chairwoman of the prong committee, it's now my pleasure to announce your prong king and queen. The envelopes, please. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, this year's prong queen is uh, Deborah Strowman. <laughs> Okay, all right, and uh, this year's prom king is... It's Greg Tolan. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Greg, way to go, Greg. Congratulations, Greg. Really quick, I just have to say, I was a kindergarten teacher for 15 years until I became a voice actor, and and, and so I went from that, well, I have my job now, right, Right. to, oh my gosh, when am I going to get a job now? So... That transition's very rough. Yeah. But I will say with just one of the guys, you that film has checks all the boxes when it comes to like 80s nostalgia that we love, right? Mm -hmm. Fashion, music, montage, dancing. Like it's got all of those things. It seemed on paper or on, on screen anyways, like a very fun shoot 
very fun experience. We talked to Ari Gross as well. Uh, you know, he he was on the show and he shared some fun memories from that shoot. Did you was it a pleasant experience for you? It was a very pleasant experience. I really made some lifelong friendships there. I talked to Tony Hudson regularly. I talked to Joyce. I have talked to Ari. I'm very close with Ken. And Ken's husband is a guy called Mitch Genunzio, who was one of the writers. He was an uncredited writer because, mm. you know, writing credits in the movie business are very complicated. And sometimes somebody comes in and does a rewrite and it kicks somebody yes. out getting a credit. Um, yeah. But I see them all the time. So it was really a seminal movie for me, it, both in my understanding of what making a movie was all about and in relationships in that business. That's incredible. Yeah, Ari would would speak about uh, kind of running around with uh, Robert Fieldsteel, Fieldsteel and uh, and John Apicella, uh, just like behind the scenes, just like all their hijinks in yeah. Arizona. <laughs> yeah, and we were all so young, so it just felt, you know, going away on a movie set when you're young, you feel you're very infantilized in a way. Someone's cooking, someone's driving you somewhere. Everybody's kind of wrangling you and telling you where to go and where to be and when. Uh, so I do think it can, if you're not mature, it can lead to a, a failure to mature, but it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> and then you went from Billy Zabka to Clayton Rohner. And I mean, two hunks in, you know. And I did two movies fantastic. with Clayton, too. You did that. And that was weird. They were my first two films. So there was a moment I thought, are we going to do every movie together? <laughs> right. April Fool's Day, you're talking oh. about, of course, which uh, which I think was the kind of the, one of the first movies to really, you know, have a have a twist like that. Um, not to give the twist away, but uh, but I, I feel like I've seen that sort of very influenced other, you know, current day TV shows will sort of do little little homages to April Fool's Day. I think you're right, and I wonder if they even know they're they're uh, winking at April Fool's Day. I do think it was a game changer. I mean, there are there. Are, yep. If you think about a, like a Hitchcock movie like Vertigo, Vertigo has a an excellent twist in it. It's but it's a different. It's my movie. favorite Hitchcock movie. By Isn't the way. that a good movie? Ah, it's beautiful. Love that movie, but it's a different kind of twist. It's a twist. Yes. kind of within more of a an accepted framework. Whereas with April Fool's Day, the twist is, to use a modern word, it's more meta. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> and I think uh, later things came out of it. And with my writing for the first three books, I've always had a twist. And I, I, I don't know if I'll always be able to write a twist, but I got a great note on my book, Ruby Falls, from my editor. And sh this is um, this one. I'll hold it up. And it's set in Hollywood. I'll hold it up too. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, that's Ruby Falls. Yeah. I'm holding a brief. <laughs> I'll hold My it up. bad. My bad. This Sorry. cover is very evocative of what goes on in the book. And it comes to the yes. moment of this big twist. And she said, I want you to rewatch the movie The Sixth Sense. When the twist comes in that movie, the director goes back and gives you a, a quick series of flashbacks where you see scenes you've already seen, but from the knowledge point that you have now, you see them differently. You yes. focus on something different. Her position was, 
she said, nobody wants Agatha Christie anymore, that kind of locked room mystery where here we all are in a room and one of us ends up dead and one of us did it. And, you know, toward the end of the movie or, or book, in walks the detective who said it was the French parlor maid. And you're sitting there thinking, well, I didn't even know who she was, the French parlor maid. She said, they don't want that. She said, they're not going to figure out the twist before it comes. But when it comes, you want to have really dropped the breadcrumb trail so that they can then say, oh, I see now what all those points were. So I think that was an extremely helpful note. That's very interesting. And of course, like a good twist is one where you go, wait a minute, and then you want to rewatch it or reread it or, right. or revisit this. Right. You want to revisit your steps, um, retrace your steps. Do, do you, in your writing process, do you start with the twist and work your way back? No. Each book has started differently. So Reef Road really began as a deep research dive into the real murder of my mother's best friend, which happened in 1948 Pittsburgh. And it was something that haunted my mother and has haunted me. And I've always paid close attention to stories like Dominic Dunn, you know, his daughter was murdered in Hollywood. And then he became kind of a fixated chronicler of some of our most high profile murder trials for Vanity Fair or Michelle McNamara. She wrote I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which became the HBO miniseries. And there was a girl murdered in her hometown outside of Chicago. And I think it gave her that kind of um, very pointed awareness that those things can happen. So I think I've always had that in my consciousness. And so Reef Road began with that. And I didn't want to write it as nonfiction. It, my, point is not really getting into every single factual detail of the real murder. And thematically, I wanted to explore this idea of conferred trauma that, mm. you know, there's an act of violence that occurs to one person, but it has a big ripple effect on other people. Think about Mystic River by Dennis Lehane. If you read the book or saw the movie that it's about that. So it was easier to get to that through fiction. So that was the genesis there. With Ruby Falls, that was weird. The first two chapters downloaded in my little brain one day. And I had never had that happen. And I thought, what the heck is this? And what was very funny, uh, when I sent the book to Fred Walton, the director of April Fool's Day, he sent me a lovely note saying, you know, how much he liked it. And I was talking to a friend of mine and I, I was saying, you know, my dad died when I was 19. And my dad didn't know anything I've done. And he sure doesn't know anything about Ruby Falls. Later that day, same day, I went to a storage unit looking for uh, a famous box of baby clothes that I had ironed and put away when my girls were young because I have a little teeny granddaughter. And I thought, I have to find those clothes. And you probably can't see it, but out of a box in storage fell this photo of my father and uh. me at Ruby Falls. And I thought, oh, we're going to wow. put that in the back of the book. <laughs> so, um, wow. But that book obviously must have come from this trip to Ruby Falls, which is a horrible place. <laughs> scary. Have you ever been there? What? Have any? No, no. no. For for everyone listening, please give your 
your take on why it's so scary. <laughs> it is an underground waterfall. So it's very dramatically beautiful, but you wouldn't know it because they turn off the lights. And where is it located? Chattanooga, Tennessee. Okay. They turn it off to pitch black darkness. And so mm -hmm. I remember being very scared there. So Ruby Falls begins with a six-year-old girl on a trip to Ruby Falls with her dad, and they've turned off the lights. Nope. She cannot tell where the waterfall is in relationship to the oh body. No. And a tour guide is saying, you know, and the divers have dived down and they've never been able to find the bottom. And this kid is riveted. And <laughs> My God. her dad lets go of her hand. And when the lights come back on, he's gone. No. So, and this is why writers would use different time periods. Uh, this is a moment in 1968. So there are no credit card records. There are no cell phone records. There are no cameras. So the tour guides are looking at this kid thinking, we don't think she came in here alone. Obviously, we don't know who she came in with. Oh, so they take her upstairs, finally call the police. And by the end of the day, the mom figures out something is wrong. She tracks her daughter down. And the mother and daughter are grounded in Chattanooga, Tennessee for the rest of the summer. The child is in what we would now call PTSD. And the mom is yeah. dealing with the search. <clears throat> and I'll give you the quick rest of the synopsis. She grows up to become an actress on a soap opera called The Finger of Fate. And she is written out, as we all know what that means in the movie business. Mm -hmm. She is fired and she hightails it for Europe. And she meets a tall, dark, handsome stranger. And this is the gothic part of it. Very referential of Rebecca. She meets this guy. She doesn't know him. And his name is Orlando Montague. And Ooh. she marries him without knowing him. And not a very well thought out life choice. They go to Rome and they're about to go in the catacombs. And she has an attack of claustrophobia, naturally. Oh. But she decides not to tell this brand new husband oh, thing that happened to her as a child. The last teaser I'll give you, they move to Los Angeles. They find the perfect cottage in the Hollywood Hills. She is cast in a remake of Rebecca on the Paramount lot. And Orlando starts to change. He's not as nice as he used to be. Mm -hmm. So you start to peel the onion of what are his secrets? So that, I mean, that just came out of this weird, crazy download of the first two chapters. And then I built this Gothic book. But so I'll tell you, in the research process there was interesting. So she's a girl who, her name was Ruby. Her name's Eleanor Ruby Russell. As a child, she was called Ruby. She's abandoned in Ruby Falls. So it's definitely a double entendre. She gives <laughs> that name and grows up to be Eleanor Russell. But she's obsessed with what could have happened to her father. So she a, becomes a bit of a conspiracy theorist. And I had a film producer say, would you consider moving this to the modern era? I said, well, a conspiracy theorist today, wow, you could go very dark. You just have someone yeah. on the internet all the time. Yeah. Back then, so by the 80s, when she's a young actress in Hollywood, she just you know, goes to the library and looks at books and to see what happened to her dad. But the decision was made going along of what exactly did happen to the dad. As 
I looked into the possibilities of what could have happened to the dad, it sort of revealed itself. Mm. I, I also want to say, too, having it be a period piece, 1968, when you did not have cell phones, did not have access to con contacting people. Uh, I had a traumatic accident when I was five and in my I, I almost died. And my mom, my brother uh, could not get a hold of my mom because he didn't know the phone number to call and didn't know about calling 911 or whatever because it was like 1980, I want to say three or two, you know? So it was not, it was, you just didn't dial 911 yeah. and then you go. And then there are, it, and it's horrible in real life, but either in literature or in cinema, they're very important, uh, they're not really tricks, but they're choices you can make as a writer. Like Brief Road, I set in the pandemic lockdown. Yeah. I wrote it here in this house in the pandemic lockdown. And so I was writing it day and date with what was going on. But I also thought it was extremely conducive to a thriller because it imposes these constraints around your characters. It puts them in a totally. box. So there's a younger woman whose husband disappears. Uh, she's married to a, a very handsome fellow from Buenos Aires. And he disappears with the children three weeks into the lockdown and is seen with security camera footage getting on a plane for Argentina and she can't follow. Those things are very helpful in yeah. Whatever you want to call it, thriller, suspense, mystery, you know, you want those uh definitions. I love that yeah. though, because you're using you're using what's going on in that moment, in that time to create that suspense and that drama. Mm -hmm. You referred to in Reef Road, um, when I saw you at the book signing, uh, you called Palm Springs a I believe uh, you said a shady place for or a oh, sunny place for shit that's what a great quotation so i've heard that quotation attributed to two writers there's a famous florida writer called carl hyacin they've made a lot of movies of his books his books are always two titles and he examines that seedy underbelly of florida i've heard that he said it but then i've also heard that somerset mom said it about the south of france back in the 1920s uh, a sunny place for shady people there you go yeah it, it's a great pithy little line which i think that explains a lot of what we like in movies and books i think i think it's why we like soap operas we want to see people who look good and who live in nice places but have something going on underneath just like we have maybe worse than we have uh it's i i think people can relate to that so i think being here in Palm Beach, was, which is a very rich and beautiful place, you think of Worth Avenue in Palm Beach, it evokes the same images as Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. They're kind of mm. shorthand. It telegraphs exactly where you are. But then when you have stuff going on under it, darker things, I think people are attracted to that. Well, I'm going to... I'm going to attribute that line to if people say, Where, where'd you get that line? I'll say, well, Deborah Goodrich Royce said that. I'll take it. So you'll be the third, <laughs> you know, incarnation of that line now. Okay. And we'll be like, Zach, why are you just talking about Florida randomly? <laughs> or I want to go there. Or you attribute it to all the places. No. <laughs> well, you can say the same about Santa Monica at times too, I suppose. Well, so. any place of wealth. 
Yeah. Really, I think, you know, there are two ways we often go. We like to see extremely impoverished people like, you know, Ozarks, or we like to see rich people like Dynasty, or or to have a newer example, Knives Out. Knives Out is appealing because it's a fancy house, it's fancy people, and they're just behaving like a bunch of animals, worse than animals, they're bad. We can all relate to that, I think, in some degree. So (laughs) family dynamics, right? Um, So, and then Finding Mrs. Ford, can you give us a brief synopsis of that? So in Finding Mrs. Ford, um, it is very Hitchcockian. It's the story of a woman whose past catches up with her. Mrs. Ford lives in a beautiful seaside community of Watch Hill, Rhode Island. So picture Newport, if you've never heard of Watch Hill. And on a sunny August day in in 2014, the FBI shows up to ask her about an Iraqi Chaldean man. The Chaldeans are Catholics from the north of Iraq. And in August of 2014, it's right at the moment when we're reading in the newspaper about ISIS rampaging all over the north of Iraq and killing a lot of people, including many Chaldeans. So they come to ask her about this guy, Sami Fakuri, and she says she does not know him. And they say, well, that's a little funny because he just took a plane from Baghdad to Boston and we picked him up in a car on his way to your house. So you know right away she's lying. You go back to Detroit in 1979, (laughs) so 35 years earlier. She's a college student. She meets this wild, crazy, incandescent girl named Annie Nelson who convinces her to go down to the edge of Detroit very rough place at the time and get a job <laughs> in a in a very sketchy disco another poor life choice she should not make this choice but she's very much under the sway of this other girl and she does and when you get into this disco you realize it's heavily frequented by Iraqi Chaldean men which is a population mm-hmm. in Detroit so it's a non-linear story between these two timelines, and you start to go back and forth to figure out what that man is doing, looking for her 35 years later. Yeah. What happened that summer of 79 and why she's lying? And the fun thing about that book is it comes to a crescendo of the twist, and then you look at it from a little different point of view. Mm. I, and in that one, the... the Inspiration for that was really a girl I had known who was a lot like Annie Nelson, very, uh, I want to use that word again, I'm going to repeat myself, incandescent. And I think we can fall under the influence of people like that. I wanted to look at that kind of female friendship, not from a sexual standpoint, but just really coming in thrall to another person and maybe making choices and decisions that you wouldn't if that person were not influencing you. I also wanted in that book to explore class, you know, going from very working class Detroit to this very rarefied New England seaside community and how a person navigates that and what that involves. And I wanted that slight geopolitical underpinning of what was going on in Iraq and this group of people. So there, there are a lot of layers in that. It's really interesting. I mean, are, are, you're from Detroit originally, right? Yeah. I was born in Detroit as well. Oh, were you? 
Yeah, I lived in Royal Oak. For yeah, well, I lived in Warren, so they're right okay. next to yeah. each other. I like to write real places. Uh, for me, it gives me a, a thrill of recognition when I'm reading someone's novel and they mention that they had dinner last night at the Ivy in Beverly Hills. And I think, oh, I've been there. I know that place. Right. Or, you know, they're walking down a street in Paris. Or I, I really particularly enjoy that. And I think think it lends a very cinematic air because you can be very, very descriptive. I have nothing against people who use made up places for novels or fictionalized places, but I'll tell you why I used Hollywood in Ruby Falls. <clears throat> so I'd lived there. Uh, I actually used a street I lived on Primrose Avenue and the Hollywood Hills. I Because Ruby Falls is such a love letter to Rebecca. And the first line in Rebecca is last night I dreamt I went to Manderley again. What a great sentence. It's sort of, it packs so much into it because you're sitting there as the reader, if you've never read it, thinking, well, what is Manderley? Why can't this person go there? You're both hmm, attracted yeah. and repelled. It's got a lot in it. And as a Gothic book, there's always this spooky undercurrent going on. And for me, I think Hollywood feels a little bit like a ghost town. I th I had lived there. I had moved away. I had gone back when one of my daughters was living there. It felt peopled by ghosts for me. So, it, and I also think everybody can understand Hollywood because we've had more than a hundred years of American cinema. We all know what yeah. it looks like. No matter where you live, you've seen Hollywood. So right. I just, you know, you can conjure up, what do those streets look like? What do the lampposts look like? You know, those ones with the frosted acorn bulbs at the top. And yeah. All of that, I just, um, I think it was a perfect kind of tie-in to Rebecca, you know, an homage, if you will. Is that your favorite Hitchcock film? No. I, I don't think it is my favorite. Uh, boy, Vertigo is a top one. Yeah. Rear Window is a top one. I'm trying to think. I haven't seen North by Northwest in a long time. I am a huge Hitchcock fan. I, if I could shape a body of work that was comparable to anybody's body of work a, as a novelist, it might be his as a director. That's awesome. That. And of course, you know, it, it, the sort of the ironic thing is like L.A. is a city of people who like don't read. And I mean, we certainly, you know, we're filled with storytellers for sure. But uh, but we're always joking that when it comes to like, you know, there's there's sort of this emptiness sometimes when it comes to just folks referencing certain things. And we, we can't you know, we, we don't go beyond the contemporary a lot of the time. So it is a joy to talk to you. Um, you know, well-read, <laughs> well-written. Um, and these, these, these moments of, ex of experiential things, when we're talking about real places, like you mentioned, it's like either you've experienced it or you say, I would like to experience that. And that's a, an experience that I always love having in, in books where it's like, oh, I don't, I haven't been there, but this sounds incredible. I had that experience reading Shadow of the Wind by, what's his name, Carlos Ruiz Zafon, set in Barcelona. I still haven't gone, but I'm going to Barcelona one day. Uh, 
it's such an evocative book, a thriller, an incredible book. I read it. I was in Singapore. My husband was on a business trip and I had all these day outings planned that I was going to tour Singapore. I was so enthralled with that book. I saw the inside of the hotel room. It was still, wow. If you haven't read it, you should read Shadow of the Wind. Haven't. Okay. I think, uh, you know, people are going to have their summer reading yeah. locked in <laughs> with all the <laughs> books and then that one yeah. as well. <laughs> um, this has been Love a it. pleasure. Thank you. Pleasure is mine. Thank you, Deborah. Nice to chat with you. I just wanted to say goodbye and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. All right. Thanks so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to subscribe and give us a four... Is it five-star rating? <laughs> Don't forget to subscribe and give us a five-star rating on iTunes. We really... Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. If you listen to us on Spotify, that's great, too. And you can find us on the Internet. <laughs> Don't forget to check out our website at $2LateFee.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook at $2LateFeePodcast. We'll see you next time. We did it. You're listening to the Geekscape Network.